God, we thank you so much for uh, this morning. God, we get a chance to sit uh, under your word, to be conformed by it. And uh, God, I pray that you would show us more of Jesus today. God, this passage is so rich. It is so dense. And uh, we need your spirit to help us. We need wisdom. We need him to lead us into the truth. We need him to bind up the distractions of our hearts. And God, we pray that we would walk out of here changed and different, looking more and more like Christ. So God, give us focus here. Give us discipline to pay attention to what you have for us over the next couple of minutes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever said something that you probably shouldn't have that later got you into trouble? I'm sure we've all been there before. I'm sure different uh, scenarios come to mind. I'm sure um, even some of us husbands, we did this even this weekend with our, with our wives. Uh, we said something that later got us into trouble. I remember in high school uh, playing basketball, we were uh, going over our offensive plays. And when I played basketball, I loved to shoot. I loved to score, did not like to pass at all. And there was this offensive play that we were running and trying to master where I caught the ball in the wing and I was supposed to pass it down low to, to my teammate. And so we're reviewing the plays and I catch the ball and I just didn't wanna pass it. I thought, you know, three is worth more than two. And so I just shot it and I made it. And so like no one said anything, right? Like I'm looking around, like, am I gonna get yelled at? And so coaches like run the play again. So we ran the play again and I shot it again. And people are kind of looking around like, what is he doing, you know? And then third time around, catch the ball, shoot it again, did not pass. And the coach, my coach, blew his whistle, kind of jogged over to me and got in my face, started yelling at me. And he asked two questions. He said, Chris, who do you think you are? And what in the world are you doing? And in that moment, I had a big decision to make. I could either respond and say, you know what, coach, I'm so sorry, like I'm gonna run the play how you designed it, that won't happen again. Or I could say something that would later get me into trouble. Well, uh, suffice it to say I chose the latter and I spent the rest of the practice running suicides. (laughs) Now, I, I share that with you because Jesus, I think, finds himself in a similar situation in John chapter five, verse 17. We saw last week how Jesus uh, had just healed an invalid, someone who is in need of healing, and he did it on the Sabbath. And this was a problem for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, because he broke the Sabbath. And so if we were there in the scene there, around verse 17, I'm sure that the Pharisees were starting to ask Jesus some questions. Who do you think you are, and what in the world are you doing? Now, Jesus in this moment, verse 17, has a decision to make. He can either say, you know what, guys, I'm sorry, I broke the Sabbath, it won't happen again, okay? He had that choice, or he could say something that would later get him into trouble. Well, as we see in verses 17 through 47, Jesus says something that led him, not only, you know, something much worse than just running suicides, actually led him to death on a cross, that you can almost trace back the reason. And when you kind of look at uh, why the Pharisees got so frustrated with Jesus that it led them to, uh, to crucifying him, you can almost go right back to John chapter five. Some of the things that Jesus says here are some of the things that will show up when Jesus is put on trial as the reason why they wanted to crucify him. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't apologize, didn't you know, take back what he did on the Sabbath because this passage here is one of the richest, 
deepest, most profound Christology that you're gonna find in all of scripture. Like what we have here is, is so magnificent about shaping the identity of Jesus and his claims towards equality with God. Here's what uh, J.C. Ryle uh, claimed about this passage. J.C. Ryle was an English evangelical bishop in the 1800s. He uh, has written one of the best books on, on God's holiness out there. He said this about our passage. He said, nowhere else in the gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. J.C. Ryle is saying that about our passage, that this is a deep passage, and it really is. And so we're gonna do the best that we can over the next 30 minutes or so. But one of the reasons why this passage is so deep is because Jesus is starting to make some claims about his identity being God. Up until this point, we've seen some of his actions, we've seen some of his miracles, and we've seen a lot of his humanity and his compassion, but now we're gonna start to see some of his claims about being actually divine. This, divine, uh, this uh, emerging uh, theme that I shared last week about this conflict between him and the Jewish religious leaders really starts to heat up here in this passage, and you can trace it back to verse 17. Verse 17 is the moment in which the Jews started to change how they viewed Jesus. They, they started to change their view of Jesus from thinking that he's this safe, compassionate, spiritual, moral rabbi who, who loved people to thinking that this guy is dangerous. Like this guy is a blasphemer. This guy is worthy of death because he claims equality with God the Father. That's why in verse 18, John says that this is the reason why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was claiming equality with God. Now, I think that their understanding of what Jesus was trying to say was incorrect. I, I think that they were missing the boat. When Jesus was claiming equality with God the Father, I think that the, the Jews here thought that Jesus was saying, you've got God the Father over here, and then you've got me over here, and we're equal, but we're different. Okay, we're on the same level, but, but, but we're completely different. I think that's what they thought when they thought about these claims that Jesus was making, and yet Jesus wasn't saying that. Jesus was saying that we are actually one in essence, but we have different roles, and that's so confusing and so hard to understand that it takes Jesus from verse 19 all the way to verse 47 to unpack that of what he actually meant. Now, in just a moment, we're gonna talk about these four claims that Jesus makes in regards to his equality with God. But there is a helpful distinction that when we talk about Christology, that I think is, is really helpful uh, when we talk about who Jesus is. Theologians make a distinction between the nature of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Okay, the nature of Jesus is answering the question, what is Jesus? And the person of Jesus is answering the question, who is Jesus? Okay, so what is Jesus? The nature of Jesus is that he's both human and he's also divine. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. Now, Jesus is, um, the, the person of Jesus, who he is, is he's God's incarnate son. 
And the reason why I think that's such a helpful distinction and the reason why theologians use that distinction is because it allows us to ascribe different descriptions about Jesus without making him two different individuals. Now we can talk about, for example, the knowledge of Jesus and we can say Jesus had an unlimited amount of, jo- of knowledge. He had an infinite amount of knowledge that he sees all things. We saw that at the end of John chapter two, where he sees the hearts and the minds of man. And yet at the same time, we can also talk about in Luke two, where Jesus was growing in his knowledge and in his wisdom. So we can say these two almost contradictory things without separating Jesus into two different individuals or two different agents. That the son of God who says and feels and does all that he does is the same Jesus who says and feels and all that he does throughout the gospel. So there is a a distinction between the nature and the person of Jesus. We're gonna see that throughout uh, the gospels here. Now, in this discourse that Jesus has, he provides four claims of equality with God that again, lead to this conflict that he has with the Pharisees. Again, this, is, this passage is so deep, it is so dense. Uh, I'm gonna do the best that I can with the time that we have uh, to kind of unpack what Jesus is saying here. Here's the first claim of equality with God. He claims to be equal in works with God the Father in verses 19 and 20. Jesus claims here that he only does what the Father does. The Father and the Son, they act in in perfect harmony. And in verses 19 and 20, I think the most important statement is really the second half of verse 19, where it says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's a very, that word whatever is so key because Jesus is saying, all that the Father does I do as well. He's not saying that, that the son only does some of the things that the father does, but everything. So if the father does a hundred things, Jesus, the son, sees all a hundred and does all a hundred, that they act in perfect harmony. That whatever the father does, Jesus does as well. Now, imagine being a Pharisee in, in this moment, in this scene. Like you're hearing Jesus kind of go off here about these different claims. And just in these first two verses, you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, Jesus, are you claiming to be equal with our God, our Father God? Are you really presuming that you can act and say and and actually be on the same level as God? You're you're talking as if there's this unity and this connection with God the Father. See, that's really the, the crux of the argument for the Jews' accusation against Jesus. They're completely bewildered at this moment that Jesus can presume to act and say the same things as God. And Jesus' response is basically, how is it possible for the Son of God to act in any way independent or inconsistent with God the Father and what he is doing? Like if I really am the Son of God, I can't act in a way that's disconnected from God the Father. In fact, separate and self-determined action would be a denial of his sonship. That Jesus is one with the Father, Jesus is God. Therefore, he must act and speak like God. Now, this is why we see Jesus doing things throughout John's gospel that only God can do. 
that he heals people. He forgives sins. He tells storms what to do and they obey. He casts demons out and they obey. He does things that only God can do. Even these seven miraculous signs that John records for us, those are all there to show us the identity as Jesus being God. They're proof of his equality with God the Father. Now, verse 20, I find very helpful because here it explains how Jesus can do whatever the Father does. Verse 20 says that Jesus can do these things because the Father loves the the Son and shows him all that he does. In other words, the Father perfectly loves the Son, Jesus, in this continuous disclosure of all that he does. Okay, so you've got this relationship between Jesus and the Father that is centered on this perfect, intimate love where the Father is constantly showing Jesus all that he does. And as a response, Jesus, the Son, loves the Father perfectly and does all that he does. Okay, so the ramifications of that relationship is that Jesus comes down on the earth and he reveals exactly who the Father is, that he makes the invisible God visible. But the motivation behind that is because of their love that they share between them. I'm highlighting that because for me, like that, that's a safeguard for us to not fall into a man-centered theology. It's, it's to help us to, to almost, almost as a safeguard to not allow us to think that God exists and has us at the center of his universe. See, what's at the center of their universe is God's glory and this love that they share between one another. That the reason why Jesus came down to the earth to reveal who God is and what he's like is because of this love primarily that they share between one another. See, sometimes we think that God does all that he does because he loves us, because we're at the center of his universe. And that's true, but that's not the primary motivation for why Jesus came down to reveal who God is. That's not the primary motivation for why Jesus went to the cross. The primary motivation is because Jesus was perfectly obeying the Father and the plan that they had before the beginning of time. Now, a secondary motivation is because of his love for us, but this motivation that Jesus has is because of this intimacy that they share between one another. Now, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, proving equality with God. Now, he doesn't only make that claim, but he also claims equality in power. So he claims to be doing the same works as his Father, but also to be equal in power and specifically the ability to give eternal life. Okay, this is the specific demonstration of his power in this passage is the ability to give life. Look at verse 21. It tells us that Jesus on behalf of the father serves as the eschatological judge with the power to give eternal life and the power to condemn In other words, all of us, every single person on the face of the planet will stand before the judge who has the power to say, yes, eternal life, or to say, no, you're condemned forever. That that power is only reserved for God. And this passage is telling us that that judge is Jesus Christ, that he has the unlimited power to give eternal life. 
And I love verses 24 and 26 because it tells us how we can receive eternal life. That it says those who hear the words of Jesus and believes, that person passes over from death to life. Now I wanna point out something significant here. This passage is talking about those who are receiving the words of Jesus, believing the words of Jesus, and those who actually believe upon Jesus, they not only will receive eternal life, but they've already received eternal life. They not only will pass through the judgment safely, but they already have passed through the judgment safely. Why? Because Jesus has already taken our place. Like we just sang a song about being hidden in the righteousness of Christ. That is already a done deal. That if you have united yourself with Christ by faith, you have already passed from death to life. That Jesus's death is your death. That his crucifixion is your crucifixion. That his resurrection is your resurrection. That has already taken place. So look, I just wanna encourage this morning, if, you're, if your faith is upon Jesus, if you trust that Jesus took your place on the cross, that he paid for yourself as the ultimate substitute, that you have something that can never be taken away from you, that your eternal life, your security in Jesus is actually being guarded by the power of Jesus who has an unlimited amount of power to safely guard you for eternal life. Like, I, I love how the apostle Paul talks about the power of Jesus here related to eternal life. He says this in Romans 8, he says, who is it to condemn, right? That question Paul is saying, who is powerful enough to condemn you? Is anyone more powerful than Jesus? And he says this, he says, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like that is such a beautiful reality and it's only possible because Jesus's, Jesus's equality with God the Father and having the same power that God actually has. And so what this means is for you who have their faith upon Jesus, if you're a believer in Christ, what this means is when you put your head down at night on that pillow and you close your eyes and, and the burdens of the day just come flooding into your mind and in your heart, all the anxieties, all of the unknowns just wanna, they just wanna choke the joy out of your soul and, and make you a prisoner of fear. Can I just encourage you to, to rehearse this glorious truth that there is nothing that is stronger than the power of Jesus to take away what is most important to you and that is your eternal life? Like there's nothing. Like for you to, to sit there and to think about all the things that you're going through and yet to repeat over and over and over again, I'm secure in Jesus. 
I'm secure in Jesus. I've already passed over from death to life. There's nothing that can touch me. There's nothing at work. There's nothing in my relationships. There's nothing going on in my soul that can get in between this love that God has for me because of the unlimited power of Jesus to give eternal life and to keep you for all of eternity. I don't know about you, but that, that encourages me. Like I'm thinking, yeah, I've got some hard things in my life, but there's nothing that can touch that. Like you used to be an object of wrath, but you're not anymore. You used to be a slave to sin, but you're not anymore. You used to be dead in your sins, but you're not anymore. You're forgiven. Like you're redeemed. You've been rescued by the great rescuer, Jesus Christ, who in him has an unlimited amount of power to keep you until the very end. Why? Because he's one with God the Father. Unlimited power. Well, Jesus goes on. He talks about being equal with God the Father in works and power, but number three here, also equal to judge. Equal to judge. These are all connected, obviously, but verse 22 very clearly says that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We know from Scripture that God had long been recognized as the judge over all the earth. That's reserved for God and God the Father. Even Genesis 18, 25, Abraham talking to God says this, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's Abraham talking to God. God has exercised judgment over his people and the surrounding nations. But at the end of the age, there will be one last judgment where all will stand before God and be judged. Revelation chapter 20 paints this picture, which says, John, who is the author of the gospel, John says this, then I saw a large white throne and the one who was seated on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. Then books were opened and another book was opened, the book of life. So the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, according to verse 22 of John chapter five, the office of this judge, the person who's sitting on this throne is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one in Revelation 20 who's doing all of those things. He is actually carrying out the judgment. Now he's doing that not independent from God the Father, but he is the agent of the one carrying out the judgment. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, doesn't this contradict a passage that we've already looked at? Like if, if your memory is coming to mind here of, of John chapter three, verse 17, you're thinking, how can you actually put these together? John three seventeen it talks about how Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, not to judge, but to save. And yet John five twenty two says that the father has entrusted all judgment to the son. Well, the resolution comes when you understand the purpose behind John three and the purpose behind John five. 
In fact, that's, that's even a helpful kind of tip as you're studying scripture. Not every verse is trying to answer every question that you're asking it, okay? Each verse, each passage is answering the question that the author is trying to answer. There's a specific purpose behind it. And when you go to John chapter three, as we've already looked, what's behind that is trying to explain why Jesus came. That Jesus came, his first coming was not to judge, but to bring life. He came to save, he came to, to bring about the new birth as we saw with his, his conversation with Nicodemus. But the purpose behind our passage in John five is to describe the role that Jesus has to play, all these different elements of Jesus's identity and his equality with the Father. And one of those roles is that he will judge the world. And so Jesus is this great judge. Now, just maybe stand back for a moment. Again, think about this scene. Like sometimes we get so far into the weeds, at least I do, that I'm like getting into the depths of Christology that I forget kind of where we are in this passage. Like here, we're at the Feast of the Jews in John 5. Remember that last week where we're near the temple Jesus just healed someone at, at this pool where there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people there gathered around. There are Jews from all over who have traveled to Jerusalem. They're trying to get washed up and cleansed at this pool. Jesus heals somebody who was disabled for 38 years, did so on the Sabbath. And there's this back and forth with the Pharisees, somewhat of a commotion is going on here in this place, okay? So there is probably a crowd that's surrounding Jesus and the Jews here in this discourse. And the type of, of temperature in the room is tense to say in the least. Like there is probably a lot of anger and, and hatred that's boiling up within the Jews. This scene is not like, like the Jews are in Jesus's classroom and, and they're taking Christology 101. Okay, they're not sitting there in their seats, writing down notes, asking questions. Oh, Jesus, that was interesting. Can you, can you go back and unpack that? Like, that was a really good point. No, 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 Jesus is not going about that in this way. As he's making all of these claims, these Jews are probably looking at each other and their faces are getting red, thinking, we need to kill this guy now. Like, this guy is going to lead hundreds or maybe thousands of our fellow Jewish people away from the faith. And so this scene here is just one in which the tension in the room, the animosity is just building and building and building as it seems like Jesus is going crazy. Jesus is claiming equality with God in works, in power, in judgment, but then it gets crazier. Jesus claims, number four here, the last thing, he claims equality with God in honor. Now, I think at this point in time, in verse 23, this is it for the Jews. Like all the other claims were, were things that Jesus does that they could kind of see, all right? But now Jesus is saying, no, 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 you now need to worship me. You now need to honor me in the same way that you honor the Father, you must honor me. Again, think about the Jews, think about the Old Testament. Think about how jealous God guarded the worship of Israel all throughout the old covenant, how he forbade them to worship any other God, any other image, any other idol, no other human creature except the one true living God. And here you have this guy, Jesus, who is standing before them and saying, yeah, the same way that you worship God, you're gonna also worship me. You also need to honor me. 
See, Jesus is claiming not, not to be a mere ambassador of the Father. He's not just a prophet who's come here. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are actually one. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 echoes this reality. When there is a day that is coming where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone will honor King Jesus. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is exactly what Jesus is claiming here and it just gets worse and worse for Jesus as he stands before the Jews. Well, before we close this morning, I wanna talk a little bit of, about some application related to this passage. I wanna answer the question, why does this matter? Why does Christology and the truth about Jesus's identity, how does this impact your Monday? Okay, let me just point out three things about this passage that I think has some practical weight to our lives. Number one is that loving Jesus may not be enough. Loving Jesus may not be enough. Some of you might be saying, man, why are we talking about theology? Like, why are we getting so deep in a passage? Aren't we just supposed to love Jesus? Isn't this a relationship? This isn't supposed to be a classroom or, or, or a religion. Like, let's get back to loving Jesus. And look, I'm all about that. Like, I'm all about loving Jesus and being in relationship with him. But my question is, what kind of Jesus are you trying to love? Like, yeah, let's love Jesus, let's focus on Jesus. But you have to ask the question, is it the biblical Jesus that you're in relationship with if you have nothing to do with Christological truth of his identity? And so I, I wanna make sure that as we're pursuing Jesus and loving Jesus, even our mission statement, igniting a passion to follow Jesus, that it's the Jesus that's outlined in scripture. See, if, if we don't talk about Jesus' identity or anything to do related to, to Christology, we're gonna fall prey to the tendency that every single one of us has, and that is to take some truth about Jesus and then to take some things that we wish were true about Jesus and to kind of mix it together and say, that's the Jesus that I follow. It's this Jesus where it's got some things about scripture and yet some things about Jesus that I wish were true so that I have a Jesus that never confronts me, never conv convicts me, never asks me to do the hard things. That's the Jesus that I want to follow. And so I wanna kind of make sure that we have the right view of Jesus, even as we travel through the gospel of John and make sure that our Christolo Christological truth is rooted in scripture. In other words, look, if I asked you the question, I was thinking about this this morning. If I asked you the question, Name me, give me a top 10 list of the reasons why you love Jesus. I'm sure we all could, could list things and I'm sure that list would be amazing. But if I asked you, okay, that's great, but give me the chapter in the scriptures of where you see those things, right? To, to make sure that we're rooting our love in Jesus and what the Bible has to say and not what maybe culture or what our own feelings want it to be. Right? And look, before you start saying, well, that sounds a little bit cold and rigid and, and, and legalistic, look, we do this in our own relationships. I was thinking about this with my own wife. I was thinking, I love Lindsay because of who she is in reality, 
not who I want her to be. Like I fell in love with Lindsay, not because she wants to watch NBA basketball with me every night. Like I would never tell you that because that's simply not true. But I, I love Lindsay, I fell in love with her because she's a servant. And, and I can tell you chapter and verse of her life of where I've, I've seen that and how it's rooted in reality. The first time that we really hung out in college, we're at a friend's house and, and, and her and some friends are making some cookies and brownies and, and the guys are watching basketball or whatever and we're hanging out. And the only person that's in the kitchen that's cleaning up and serving is Lindsay. Like that is a real factual thing that has rooted my love for her and it's not rooted in something that, that's not based in reality. So if we do it in our own relationships, let's make sure that we're doing it with Jesus or we're gonna make him up into whoever we want him to be. In fact, I just wanna add this here that pursuing, pursuing biblical Christology does not hinder your love for Jesus, but it actually grows it. Don't think that the study of scripture and the true side of Jesus is going to stunt your passion for him, but the more that you get to know the Jesus of the Bible, the more your love and passion for him will actually grow. Why? Because the way that your soul was created is to know the one true living God. We're actually commanded to do this. In fact, 2 Peter 3.18 says, says this, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a command, it's not optional. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is so deep and vast and infinite, you could spend your entire life, all of eternity, trying to get to know more and more who Jesus is and you would not even scratch the surface. Like I wanna challenge you, don't, don't settle for the view of Jesus that you have but continue to grow in your development of your Christology. Like most Christians, they have maybe these three truths about Jesus. Like they know the birth of Jesus from the Christmas story. They know Jesus, the savior who's on the cross. They, they might know Jesus, uh, the King Jesus in the resurrection, the Easter story. And they've got those three truths and that's a great foundation, no doubt but there's so much more. There's so much more about the person of Jesus that's in the scriptures that's there in order to conform us to the person of Jesus. And look, I don't want us to just settle for how we view Jesus and say, okay, I'm good. I'm gonna move on to other things throughout the Bible. Like if you stop growing in your knowledge of Jesus, in your Christology, your intimacy with him will be negatively impacted. Or just another illustration for us. I don't know if you've ever gotten together with, a, with an old friend that you haven't talked to in a few years and, and you're talking with them, you're connecting and, and you know, it's been a while since you've really had a heart to heart and you realize in that conversation that you're kind of going back to old times but the depth and the intimacy may not be there because you realize you've got an outdated version of each other. Like I do this all the time with my college friends. They know the college Chris, the basketball Chris. They don't know the pastor Chris, the father Chris. And so we're trying to connect and talk and it kind of feels like old times, but there's a lack of depth and intimacy because I'm wanting to connect on this level, the updated version of me. And they wanna keep going back to this outdated version. And look, we can do the same thing with God. We can go back to this view of God that we learned years ago and we can fail to learn and continue to learn new things and more things about Jesus that actually deepens our intimacy with him. I wanna commend a resource for you that can help deepen your Christology. 
Um, this book is, I think, one of the best on uh, the, the nature and the person of Jesus. It's called God the Son Incarnate. God the Son Incarnate. It's by Stephen Wellum, W-E-L-L-U-M. Just encourage you to purchase that. Have it right next to your Bible. Read you know, a few pages, think about it, pray through it, and allow your Christology uh, to grow. So that's uh, application number one. These last two will be shorter. Number two, leave space for healthy mystery. Leave space for healthy mystery. Look, I'm pushing us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus, you know, create space to think deeply about who Jesus is, absolutely. But also understand that because God is infinite, you are never going to master Jesus. You're never gonna get to the bottom of it. And so this should actually create humility in our hearts, this should actually create a deep desire to want to know more and more about Jesus. This should not create an air of arrogance or pride as if we have it figured out, okay? Like the more knowledge that you have about God, hopefully the more humility that you have in regards to how you talk about God, because you're learning, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't know anything about God. Like God is infinite and I am finite. And that should lead us not to insecurity, but to a type of humility. So leave space for healthy mystery, God being three in one, the, the mystery between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, God being equal with God. Yeah, it's, it's all like, man, my, my brain hurts thinking about it. And that's a good thing. We want a God who is big and who is vast, who we cannot fully comprehend. And then this last thing here, this probably won't be a surprise to you, but the end goal here is to marvel at Jesus. Like the end goal of, of you developing a deep understanding of Jesus is not just to gain more head knowledge, but it's for that head knowledge to trickle down into your heart and for that to change you. Like God is not just a topic to be studied. God is a God to be worshiped. It's, it's, he's a God that we're supposed to enjoy and to be satisfied with and to treasure. And that, that is why our mission statement is exactly what it is. We want to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. It's not igniting a desire to study Jesus or anything. It's, we wanna follow after Jesus, which means we need to know Jesus, we need to love Jesus, and we need to apply what we know and what we love into our lives every single day. Look, when I pray for you as a church, which I try to do often, you know, I not only ask God to give you a desire to spend time with him, but I ask God to just allow the desires of your heart to be captured by the beauty of Jesus. That's what I want for you. I want for you to spend time in the word, but not just to gain more head knowledge, but I want your lives to be changed through your affections and through your desires. So we're not just walking around this earth with a bunch of head knowledge and a bunch of theology degrees, and yet our, our practical lives aren't impacted. So I just wanna encourage you, make that time with the Lord, unhurried time, unrushed time, where you can learn about Jesus and you can pray through all the things that you're learning so that your desires are being changed for the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the richness of your word. God, thank you that we can study it and study it and study it and we can't get to the bottom of who you are. God, that creates just a hunger and for us just to know you more. God, I pray that you would not allow us to be content with how much we know about you, but God, we wanna, we wanna dive headfirst into the scriptures. 
God, we wanna have a desire to know more, but also to live out what we know to be true. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you didn't, um, Lord, you didn't just sit back and allow the, the Pharisees to do what they wanted, but you stepped up and you, and you proclaimed amazing truth that has shaped how we view you because we desperately need to view you what the Bible says. God, help us to sing well here in this last song. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.